Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Project. Welcome to Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Project. I'm your host, Wayne Yurcha. Our digital world brings us many benefits, but it also exposes our children to an addictive and toxic mix of tech, media, and consumerism that harms their healthy development and undermines their happiness. To better navigate the ever-increasing pressures and challenges of this accelerating digital world, today's children and families need to develop a power we call choicefulness. Choicefulness is a power built on a new and different set of skills, skills specifically designed to protect and prepare our children for a fulfilling future in the age of noise. So if you're a parent looking for new ways to engage with your children, motivate your children, and prepare them for a positive future, we have created this podcast to help you. Thank you for joining us. This is episode number three, and I'm here once again with my podcast partner, developmental and educational psychologist and kids media expert, Dr. Rob Ryer. Now, in podcast number two, we talked about the cycle of noise and why noise is such a threat to our children's future. And of course, one of the things we all need to do to help us deal with that threat is to learn to use our technology more wisely. And that's why we're excited to have award-winning author and science journalist Catherine Price with us today. Catherine's work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, O Magazine, and numerous other publications. And she's just written an excellent new book called How to Break Up with Your Phone. So, Catherine, welcome to Live Above the Noise. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. As I said in the introduction, you've written this uh, excellent book called uh, How to Break Up with Your Phone. And before our listeners start to get nervous about that, I just want to read something that you had in the introduction. You say, let's get something clear from the start. The point of this book is not to get you to throw your phone under a bus. So um, maybe you want to just talk about, about that a little bit. What prompted you to, to write the book and what do you hope that uh, readers will get out of your book? Well, I think that's a great place to start because I do like to reassure people right from the beginning, this is not about getting rid of your phone. Your phone is an incredibly useful and practical tool and a legitimate, um, legitimately entertaining part of your life. But with that said, most of us don't have very healthy relationships with our phones. And for me, the moment of revelation came shortly after I'd had a daughter and I was sitting with her late one night and I noticed that she was looking up at me as I was looking down at my phone. And that really affected me deeply. I didn't want that to be what she thought of a human relationship or what she experienced with her relationship with her mother. So that was really the catalyzing moment for me. Um, the result of that two years later is this book. And what I hope that people will get out of it is basically a new awareness of their relationship with their phone and how it's affecting them. And then even more importantly, tools that they can use to create a relationship that is right and healthy for them. We believe the same thing. I mean, technology gives us so many benefits. And, uh, you know, we talk about on our podcast, we talk about noise a lot in terms of the stuff that's coming out of tech, media and consumerism that's not really great for you. So anything that helps people separate what is good for them from what isn't good for them is a great way to go. And in terms of that, just to kind of get started with that, there was something in your book that I read that I thought was just a, an incredibly uh, profound statement and absolutely right on. You say in it, 
if you wanted to invent a device that could rewire our minds, if you wanted to create a society of people who were perpetually distracted, isolated, and overtired, if you wanted to weaken our memories and damage our capacity for focus and deep thought, if you wanted to reduce empathy, encourage self-absorption, and redraw the lines of social etiquette, you'd likely end up with a smartphone. I mean, wow, that is an incredibly dramatic and correct statement. You've done a lot of research on this, and clearly there's an awful lot of stuff that's going on with our smartphones that's affecting us. Did you want to just go into a little bit of what gave you the most pause when you were when you were looking at everything? Uh, sure. And thank you for reading that so beautifully. You can definitely uh, do the audiobook version. That was very soothing <laughs> for me to listen to, slash alarming. Um, well, first of all, I truly believe each of those statements. And I think that what I found as I was doing the research, I'm a science journalist. Um, I keep saying in my normal life, like this is not my normal life. So I am a science journalist. And therefore, I brought that investigative spirit to this project as well. And what I wanted to do was to find out if the suspicions that I had about my phone had any basis in reality, if there actually were changes occurring in my brain, because I certainly felt at the point where I started writing this book that I was really having trouble focusing and paying attention, maintaining my concentration for more than just a paragraph or two. And I just felt dull and kind of off. And I didn't know if perhaps that was because I'd had a baby or because I was getting older, or it, it might be my phone. So when I looked into the science of neuroplasticity, which is the ways that our brains change in response to stimuli, I realized that, no, I'm not crazy. I mean, maybe I'm crazy, but I'm not crazy <laughs> for thinking that there really is something going on as a result of my phone. And that, in fact, our phones are like little personal trainers that we keep in our pocket that are teaching our brains and training our brains to change. The average person is spending about four hours a day on their phone just with the screen on that's based from a time tracking app called Moment that has almost 5 million users. If you do that, if you, as I say in the book, if you do anything for four hours a day, it's going to have an impact on you. You're going to get pretty good at it because you're exposing your brain to a stimulus over and over and over again. And that is how we learn. It's like digital flashcards. What I found when I looked into the research about what this actually is doing to our brains was very upsetting. I, I realized that actually it is having an impact on our ability to concentrate. We're basically presenting ourselves with a constant stream of distractions when we're on our phone. And I was very upset about that to realize that naturally our brains actually don't want to be able to focus. It's not very good evolutionarily speaking to be able to focus and concentrate because you actually want to be alert to changes in your environment because they might indicate a threat. So when you are reading, you're actually doing an amazing feat of being able to shut out all of the distractions around you and to stay focused on these abstract symbols on a page. So it's not just that our phones are training us to be distractible, it's that they're actually encouraging our brains, making it easier for them to slip back to where they want to be to begin with. It's the equivalent of how it's harder to get into shape than it is to get out of shape. So in other words, it's not like a neutral, you're not starting really from a neutral position, you, your brain naturally wants to be out of shape when it comes to concentration. So I found that upsetting. I found it really upsetting to realize it was affecting my memory in the sense that obviously, if you don't pay attention to something in the beginning, you don't have any memory of it in the short term, and therefore won't have long term memory. But one thing that I found particularly concerning was the fact that our long term memories exist in these networks of memories where seemingly disparate things are connected to each other. Um, the example I use in the book is that if you have like an orange and a traffic cone, they're connected because they're both orange, but they're not connected by function. Whereas an orange and a lemon are connected because they're citrus fruit, but a lemon and a traffic cone aren't connected, if that makes sense. And the more 
the, the deeper and, and wider reaching these connections are, the easier it is or more likely it is that your brain is going to make connections between seemingly unconnected things, which really, to me, is the definition of creativity and insight. And the thing is that it takes it takes distraction-free time for our brains to actually create those connections between these seemingly separate things. And long-term memories, so this is a form of long-term memory, actually require the creation of new proteins in the brain. And both of those processes are easily interrupted by distractions. So when you're looking at your phone all the time, it's not just that you're experiencing your life through a tiny screen and therefore not having experiences to remember to begin with, but you're actually harming your ability to store the experiences that you do have into these networks and you're making the networks more shallow and therefore you're weakening the likelihood, reducing the likelihood that you're actually going to come up with anything original or interesting at all. So I think that is definitely something I found upsetting. I mean, honestly, I found it all upsetting so I could keep going on. But I think if I had to pick just one more thing, it's the relationship aspect. Something that I realized when I had this experience with my daughter is that in the back of my mind, it reminded me of something I'd seen or heard about. And I realized that thing was this experiment called the still face experiment, which I highly recommend Googling if you want to depress yourself in the middle of a workday. And it's a video of this experiment where these researchers have parents interact with a baby normally. So looking at the baby interacting with it, um, cooing back, and then they have the parents make their faces go totally still just for one minute and just look at the baby, but not have any reaction at all to what the baby is doing. And it is very upsetting to see what happens to the baby in the course of one minute where it goes from happily cooing and expecting eye contact, well, they get eye contact, but expecting a smile, expecting a response to this kind of confused look, to this distressed look, to this high pitched screeching noise that the baby was not making previously, and actually writhing in the seat to try to get out of the seat because the baby is so upset. Wow. And I bring that up because what I realized is that that's what I was doing to my daughter. I was still facing her. I wasn't even looking at her, but she's doing all these things to get my attention. I'm not paying attention to her. And then I realized we're also doing it to everyone in our lives, to our friends, to our family members, to our loved ones, to ourselves. And that I think is one of the most disturbing things about this is is the effect that this is having on our relationships, and both in the simple sense of the way that you'd observe, you know, you're not paying attention to your friend, what they're saying, so you're not actually interacting, but something deeper going on that was that's reflected in the impact of that still face experiment. I think we don't really know the full impact of what we're doing to ourselves, what, what it's going to be. And I think that's probably one of the scariest parts. Well, I think we're seeing that through society in terms of a whole societal thing with regard to empathy and respect and everything and that whole connection. Now, Rob, you've had many experiences with a lot of the stuff that uh, Catherine has just been talking about as a developmental and educational psychologist, that whole ability to focus, first of all, is deeply being affected in us, isn't it? Yeah, and I've seen it. First of all, Catherine, I want to thank you for your work and uh, also, the scientific basis of it is fantastic, and it's so necessary. And that's one of the things that's, from our end, the things is hard to get people to pay attention to and go deeper down into the well to understand what's going on with regard to the brain itself and neuroplasticity. So congratulations on our great uh, piece of work here. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to hear that. But from my perspective, yeah, I've, I've been in, in and out of the classroom at every level from elementary school when I started out to university, and I've had the occasion to watch kids over 40 years. So when you get to the point where you're in a classroom and everyone's bringing the cell phone into the room at a college level, and then everyone's getting upset if you ask them to turn it off, and then everyone's attention span is shorter 
and virtually everyone is complaining that the task that you're giving them, uh, the research task or whatever it is that was normal years back to do 18, 22-page research paper, and now like if it's three pages, five pages, and you're getting feedback like, you know, that's too hard, and when you do get work, it comes in from a Wikipedia without the skills, the critical thinking skills and the creative skills necessary, like you mentioned, to do a correct piece of work and a correct piece of research. So I've been in those trenches watching this over time, and it's, it is scary because there's definitely, from my perspective, a major change happening with regard to attention, critical thinking. Executive function is what, from my end of things, I notice dropping out at a significant level. Hmm. I mean, that's very interesting to hear. And it also makes total sense from the brain perspective, because your executive function is the prefrontal cortex, which is one of the newest brain regions to develop. And it's one of the first ones to jump offline if it gets stressed out or overwhelmed, which is what we do whenever we're on our phones, we're overwhelming ourselves with information and different stimuli. Uh, So it doesn't surprise me to hear that. But I, I haven't heard someone say in such concrete terms about the idea that a research paper is too hard now. Um, you know, a friend of mine who's a professor of journalism, she was telling me about a class she'd heard of where people just sit around and read in silence (laughs) and then it's like oversubscribed. (laughs) And so she tried it with her students. She's at the university of Mississippi and she actually had a class where she just had them read long form journalism for an hour and then talk about the experience. And she said it was very interesting because even though these are millennials or younger than millennials, uh, supposedly not in touch with anything, you know, <laughs> emotional yeah, or like, right. but actually they, they all really picked up on how it felt different to read a printed piece rather than read it on the screen. Anyway, all that is to say, I think it's very interesting to hear perspectives of educators in particular, and in particular, people who've been educating for a long time to see how, because I think that's like the first line of witnesses, I guess, to how this is changing things, because you have a sense of how there used to be interaction in the classroom or what work used to be considered reasonable to see how it's changing. I've heard stories from educators who say things about the social nature that, you know, you used to have to fight. I mean, I was a teacher briefly myself, you used to fight to get people to shut up (laughs) and pay attention. And they say now that's not a problem at all, because no one's talking because they're just all on their phones. And try taking them away. (laughs) You know, like shutting them down Mm -hmm. for for a 50 minute period of time, and you get just amazing feedback, or a lot of stuff going on under the table or between the books or, you know, hiding them, (laughs) all kinds of strategies to make sure they can check every three minutes. Well, that's when, when I start to think like, I mean, this really should be something that's not just dealt with in a rule-based manner, but this should be part of the curriculum. I think it's a life skill and life awareness that should be taught, which is to say, let's use our phones to teach ourselves how our brains work. And let's notice what our phones are doing to our brains and actually talk about it so that at very least people are more conscious that when they are doing those surreptitious checks, it's because they're addicted to their phones. It's because their dopamine circuitry has been activated and it's because they're in this loop. And like on their deathbed, I don't think they're going to be wanting to check Facebook more and more. So I think it's a really important life skill. I've also spoken to people, and this might just be of interest to your listeners too, um, in particular, this app called Flipped, F-L-I-P-D. And yes, I know, ironic to be suggesting apps to help us stay off apps, but I, I think that actually they can be very useful tools. And the idea there is that it actually is geared toward educators. And what it does is it create allows educators to create a virtual classroom where um, everyone in the class joins the quote unquote class 
Then when the class is about to start, the teacher, I think actually this happens automatically because you can set the time. Everyone in the class gets this invitation to quote unquote flip off and basically to deactivate their phones. So they've said that that actually makes it easier for the professors because they don't have to be constantly reminding people or asking them. There's an expectation and an easy way to do it. But what's more, and I think this is particularly interesting, they turn it into a game where there's a leaderboard where the app actually tracks how much time each person in that class has spent away from their phones and the teacher mm-hmm. can see it. So they can actually tell if anyone is on it. But it turns into a game where you have you can actually have a winner who is able to spend the least time on their phone, the most time away. So I think there are some creative ways to try to start, um, get people to think about this in a way that doesn't make them defensive and doesn't make them angry. Yeah, I agree. And you know, one of the, the apps that I've, I've been using uh, as an experiment for the last uh, five years and recommending it to my students is uh, the Brainwave app on the iPhone. So basically, there's 25 different Brainwave patterns that you can initiate. And that has everything to do with increasing attention or going to sleep or headaches or physical fitness preparation. But I was testing it before I used it with students because I wanted to make sure, you know, the validity. And now I probably use that app at least twice a day for the last four years. Uh, wow, how does it measure you, your brain waves or tell what state you're in? I don't know exactly how that does. You could tell me, but um, it's not measuring the brain wave as much as it's initiating the brain wave pattern. So what it's <laughs> doing is giving you different brain wave patterns that are going to alter your behavior. And, and I found it to be like, for example, if I wake up at night and I start thinking too much, you know, I could do that. <laughs> I'm sure you could too. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, so stick in the brainwave and uh, let's do the deep sleep pattern and within for me, because I've used it so often and for so long, it's three minutes, five minutes and back into deep sleep, dreaming, and I can refresh and get a good night's sleep. So there are things like that, apps like that. Is it like something you listen to and and it plays tones or something? It gives you a a, a binaural kind of brainwave to listen to. And it, it refers to each of the brainwaves the patterns. And it says, this pattern does this, it moves you into beta state. And then you have the option to assist that brainwave pattern with music, different types of music or sounds. So it's a combination of uh, two inputs. One, the brainwave state that it's trying to move you into. And the other one is an accompanying kind of audio of your choice. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. I mean, you know, in some ways, it sounds like nuts. But I have a piano teacher who's been talking to me about that exact kind of thing since I was, I mean, I met him when I was six years old and talking about alpha waves and talking about using music and different oral triggers to change the way that your brain works. I mean, I think it's very interesting to play around with that, with that kind of thing. And, you know, especially if you're finding that it works and gets you back into deep sleep. Yeah. And I think that the technical word is entrainment. Mm -hmm. So it's brainwave entrainment. So it's going to entrain your brainwave to match the wave I'm giving you. Uh Right. Which is interesting. I mean, I'm speaking with absolutely no scientific background. I mean, like, uh, I haven't looked into this, so I'm just hypothesizing here. But what you're saying reminds me of a friend of mine who created an online cabinet of curiosities called Idols of the Cave, which I highly recommend people check out. But he (laughs) um, he did a piece. he, He does these explorations of these phenomena and and tries to encourage the sense of wonder, but also to find answers. And he did a thing about synchronicity and about why clocks will start to tick and tock in the same rhythm as another clock if you put them near each other, which is a true thing that happens. Anyway, that reminds me of that. It seems like there's probably a connection in there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
And I noticed you wrote the book on a meditation journal or a mindfulness journal. I did. I did. So regarding the mindfulness dimension, how do you feel about the current movement and the changes toward mindfulness today? I know it's picked up a lot of steam. Are you looking toward mindfulness as a major solution for people in this world where we have a speed of change occurring and they need relief? Yes, I do. Um, I think it's important to define mindfulness, though, because I think it's become such a buzzword that it's used all the time. And people have a tendency, I think, at this point to start to shut off if they hear the word mindfulness in a way, at least in the book publishing world. Um, For example, I, I went to a hospital cafeteria once and I looked up at the different food stations. I mentioned this in the journal, but it was like pizza, pasta, and then it just said mindful. That was one of the stations. I was like, what does that mean? It turned out it was like low sodium broth with your choice of vegetable. So I think it's important to define that's not the tool that's going to change our lives. But if you define mindfulness simply as the act of consciously paying attention to your present experience without judgment, that's extremely powerful. Mm -hmm. And to give an example of that, There's a researcher named Judson Brewer who does fascinating work. He's at UMass now at the Center for Mindfulness. He is a psychiatrist and he did a study in which he wanted to see if what I just described, paying attention to how you feel in the moment without judging it, could actually make a difference in people's ability to quit smoking. And he did a series of studies where he compared that technique to the American Lung Association's gold standard program, which I believe was called Freedom to Quit. And he found that the mindfulness in the short term was twice as effective and in the long term was five times as effective. And the concrete example of how that would work in the case of smoking is that he encouraged people that if you want, basically don't try to stop smoking right at the beginning of this program. Smoke when you want to smoke. But when you do that, pay attention to how the experience is. Pay attention to the feeling of the cigarette. Pay attention to the way it tastes, to how it feels when you inhale the smoke, to how it makes your breath smell afterwards, to how it tastes, to how the smell lingers on your clothes. Just pay attention. And the point there was to make people more conscious of what they were doing, and then give them a chance to ask if they wanted to be doing that. And what he found, he's got this great quote from one woman who talks about how when she actually tasted the cigarette for the first time, she realized she didn't like the taste, and that she went from knowing intellectually that smoking was bad for her to, as he puts it, knowing it in her bones. She went from knowledge to wisdom, is the way that he phrases it, and became, to use another adjective he likes, disenchanted with smoking. So that's an example of how mindfulness, which is to say awareness, really actually is an extremely powerful tool for behavior change. And a tool that doesn't feel restrictive, and it doesn't feel forced. It's kind of allowing your natural curiosity to flourish, to actually be present in what you're experiencing and be curious about it, and then decide whether or not that's actually what you want to be doing. I notice you use that technique in your book, which is don't try to stop the habit immediately. Uh, become more aware of how it works and, and exactly so you unpack it a step at a time and you don't make it an overloading, difficult experience. One of the things that we talk about in our podcast a lot, which is, in fact, it's the focus of our whole podcast series, and that's choicefulness. The definition of choicefulness that we have is the awareness, ability, and control necessary to make wise, thoughtful, and self-directed choices And those three things, the awareness, ability, and control dimensions of those, that whole idea of realizing that we're the one making the choices gets back to your whole point about this woman you were talking about. She finally tasted the cigarette for the first time and was able to make a choice as to whether or not she wanted to do it. And that was only because she finally had awareness into that whole situation. And then given our definition, does she then have the ability and then does she have the control to do that as well? And you know, Catherine, I became obsessed 
with the idea of good choosers. Maybe as far back as 1968, when uh, Abraham Maslow, he had his hierarchy of needs, but uh, he also came up with this idea of what makes a good chooser. And then that led him to the idea of self-actualizers were good choosers. Uh, Otherwise, they would not have become self-actualizers. And that was really the foundation for the idea of choice then, what, what today makes a good chooser, and why would awareness, ability, and control be the three dimensions, and how does awareness lead to ability and that lead to control? So what you're talking about on your end is the exact same thing, which is if you don't get the first step of that piece, and Wayne just mentioned, then the second step of developing a permanent ability not to smoke will not show up. We probably have, at least I do, I have the biggest concern today, I think, is a biocultural mismatch between the culture and what the human mind and brain is capable of changing at the same speed of. In other words, it's like the mismatch is that the culture is going to move much faster with media tech and consumerism than the brain is to keep up with it. And uh, I encourage you to take a look at an article that I just posted today on our website that will it'll blow your mind. The article's entitled Fake Video. It's all about a guy named, his name is Deep Fake. And his comment was, we're not far from the collapse of reality. And his major point, it's an article in Atlantic Magazine. He piggybacks on the idea that uh, Neil Postman wrote about, and uh, I think his book was in 1985. It was called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And then Huxley wrote about it earlier, Brave New World, in 1932. And they both made the comment that we will enjoy our demise that as we become more and more addicted to the technology and to the levels of technology Mm -hmm. that are shifting our reality, we'll enjoy that. But at the same time, what the commonality of who we are underneath that will disappear and it'll wind up being individuals with their own realities. So this article in the Atlantic that's on the website, we do something called Noise Watch, which is try to keep our listeners up to date on changes talks about that, says we're at a point right now where virtual reality is the next step. And then it becomes like, what reality do you want to have? You know, what do you feel like today? And then that eventually knocks out the ability to have any solid frame of reference because you can choose your own frame of reference. So then what is the cultural commonality with regard to values? Catherine, what do you find based on all of this and the situation that we're in? Are there some things, particularly for children and families, that you want to share with our listeners? You mentioned to me that you have something on your website as well with regard to that. Maybe you want to just talk about a little bit of that. Sure. Yes. And, I'm, and by the way, I completely agree with the danger that we will enter, that we will enjoy our demise. I think you see that when you look around and see people uh, texting as they cross the street. It's like, oh, hope you're having a good time with whatever that is, because that might be a little bit But the, the book's website is phonebreakup.com. There are a lot of resources on there, including a 30-day online challenge people can sign up for that's designed to accompany you and motivate you as you go through the book. So it, it's a series of timed emails that start whenever you sign up. So it's a personal kind of coach. And then there's also lock screen images you can download um, that say things like, what do you want to pay attention to? Do you want to pick me up right now? What for? Why now? What else? 
And people have found those to be useful as little, I call them speed bumps, something that makes you slow down when you're about to automatically check your phone and make sure that if you proceed, it's by choice. So I recommend those. And then I also put together a collection of resources for parents and for educators that people can look at some recommended books and also some of my thoughts on the subject because I didn't get to get into it as much as I wanted to in the book. But I mean, basically, what I would say is that I think that this is a reality. I think virtual reality is a reality. I think that phones are not obviously going to go anywhere. Actually, if they go anywhere, they're going to just become obsolete. I do think that it's going to soon seem ridiculous that we have been spending so much time trying to type things on those tiny little keyboards. And that soon you'll be able to do it without using your hands. I mean, even now with the earbuds, the Bluetooth earbuds that you see people walking around with since the advent of the latest iPhone. I mean, I think that soon those are going to be small enough. You probably won't even see when someone has headphones in. So that's weird. My point being, though, that it's not going away. It's going to get more uh, powerful, more insidious in a way, more useful in a way, and that we need to become more aware to get back to the theme of our conversation of how we're interacting with technology and how we want to be interacting with technology so that as it becomes more sophisticated, we are prepared to stay in control of it. When it comes to children and phones, I have a three-year-old, so this is definitely something I think about. I think it's very important for new parents to start from the very beginning. I mean, this should, and actually any parent, even if you've got older kids, this is something we should actually be talking about. Instead of just lamenting how much time your teenager spends on their phone, you should, and then trying to take it from them. First of all, look in the mirror, see how much time you're spending on your phone. Notice your own habits. It's very unfair to ask your 13-year-old to not spend time on Snapchat at the dinner table when you are on the news at the dinner table. That's just not fair and it's not productive. Um, what I hope to do with our daughter, we'll see, you know, we can check in in like 15 years and see how this goes. <laughs> but so far, I try my best not to be on my phone around her because I don't want her to think about it as a source of entertainment. And I don't really want to be on my phone much in general. So it's a good cue to, you know, a reminder that I don't want to do it. When I do use my phone in front of her, I try to say what I'm doing. So if I'm uh, ordering something or if I'm about to call, you know, my, my mom, like we do use it for FaceTime. I think that's an okay use of the phone with her is to actually have her connect with a real person. Um, but as she gets older, I think this this is something that we will be discussing as a family. In other words, I, I actually have done this already. When we go to, say, a children's museum and all of these parents are on their phones to say, oh, well, look at that. Every, all these grownups are on their phones. You know, and as she gets older, I would like to ask questions like, well, what do you think? What do you think that's making the other person feel? Like if you're at a restaurant and you see somebody pull out their phone and not pay attention to the person across them, what do you think that makes them feel? It's a great tool for actually building a capacity to feel empathy and compassion to counteract how our phones are taking away that ability. Um, And basically using it as an ongoing conversation with the hope that again, it could go from wisdom, I'm sorry, knowledge to wisdom, so that by the time she is old enough to get whatever the technology is at that point, she will have enough of a sense of self and enough awareness of it that she will, in a sense, become immune to the potential negative addictive qualities, is what I'm saying. That the disenchantment um, adjective really struck a chord with me because I think that that is really true that technology is so seductive and it's so appealing. But once you start of, once you pull back the curtain or once you kind of like open your eyes, it's very emperor's new clothes. Once you realize this is designed to steal my life from me, really, right? And that I am making money for someone else when I am giving them my attention. And once you think, well, how does this actually make me feel? Do I feel good when I'm looking at other people's Instagram photos? I think that then you become, I mean, this sounds so cliche, but you become empowered. You're able to use the technology, but also stay on guard against its negative impact. 
And so my hope is that, and my, and my suggestions, hey, everyone out there, try this and let's reconvene in a number of years to see what happened. It says that if we turn this into a conversation and a, something that we're all working on together, instead of one group of people trying to control another group of people without necessarily changing their own habits, my hope is that we will be better equipped to lead fulfilling lives and get the good parts of technology without being so vulnerable to the bad parts. Yes. But what would you think the greatest challenge is now with the three-year-old between, especially with the developmental stage that she is before her executive function is mapped in? And so therefore, not really being able to make those kind of assessments at the earlier age. What do you do between, uh, I know a lot of moms struggle with this, between birth and say eight, nine, 10 years old, that first window is, what do you think the best way to handle the phone is for that? those couple early stages? Well, I mean, I would say, if I'm being very blunt, I don't think we should be giving kids phones as early. I mean, the average kid is getting a smartphone at the age of 10.3 now. And it's like, guys, we're the grownups. And and very few nine-year-olds are able to pay $1,000 for an iPhone X. So this is in our control in those younger ages. So in the younger ages, in a way, I think it is a bit easier because you actually do have full parental control. So I would say, I strongly recommend to parents of newborns, like don't get in the habit of giving your child the phone. Don't because it will, it is tapping into our most primal brain regions. It is addictive. It is, I would say the equivalent of giving your child like mental cigarettes. Once you get hooked on that phone and you can see this, I'm sorry, that's not my phone. That's my insulin pump. I have got type one diabetes and just got mad at me. Um, Once you get your kid trained to expect the phone as entertainment, they're not going to want to look at a book. They're not going to want to like scribble on a piece of paper. They're going to want to use an app where they can scribble on the app. And that, by the way, is a very different experience from doing something tactile with real objects. And I can get a little bit, I don't know, evangelical about this. I'm very into Montessori education and the idea of giving children real objects that have consequences if you drop them and teaching them things like practical um, life skills, such as grace and courtesy and cleaning up for yourself, blah, 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 blah. But I can tell you, for example, like I went on a I'm a bit extreme about this. We went on a plane trip, forgot where we were going with our daughter. Maybe it was to Denver. It was about four hours. And you know, oh my goodness, that's a long time with like a two-year-old. And I know a lot of friends who who are very strict about phone use and they say, listen, planes, what happens on the plane stays on the plane. And I do actually agree that there are circumstances where, yeah, I get that. But I was really feeling like very adamant. So I didn't let her look at any kind of screen. And I was looking through my bag desperately. And my wonderful mother actually had tucked in this set of stamps these little stamping things. And I gave those to her. And then I watched her playing very happily, very contentedly with this set of stamps, you know, dropping them all over and like stamping the tray, but whatever. (laughs) And and I was thinking, I'm sure there's an app for that, right? There's a stamping app that I could have let her use on the iPad that she could have stamped. And honestly, the results would have looked pretty similar, but it's not the same thing at all. I was watching her little fingers try to pick up these tiny foam blocks and try to figure out how do I actually get this in the ink? And I was watching with a bit of dismay, but how much ink was getting everywhere on her hands and whatever, but thinking these are all learning experiences. And what's more, it's an experience of interacting sensorily with the world that you don't get on a screen. So I'm rambling now. This is definitely something to think about a lot, but I think that before your child has the ability to control their own behavior or be aware, have that metacognition of their behavior, it's our job as adults to set limits and not be afraid to set limits. And recognize that this is actually, you don't, I mean, this is quoting my grandmother, if everyone else jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge, would you too? But it's true. 
I watched recently as I was waiting in line <laughs> to get a salad because I just like watch people now. I'm very creepy. If you sit, if you're next to me on the elevator and you're on your phone, I'm looking over your shoulder. So just know that. But I was watching this little kid, very young, in a stroller, and he was on a phone. And I was watching the mother and she went up to pay and she was using Apple Pay or something. So she needed to get the phone from him. He had been completely docile, completely calm and totally, you know, into this video game. And she went to take it away. And this kid hit her hand and began to throw a tantrum. And I was thinking to myself, that does not surprise me at all. And oh, man, I wish it were not so culturally unacceptable for me to like say something now. I mean, I'm not going to go that far. But this is what we're training our kids to do. It turned into a little animal. And it makes complete sense because he was in his animalistic state of where his brain was. I think there's a great value in teaching kids to be bored and allowing them to be bored and to be patient. I could go on, but I, I really do. I, I think that that's very important. And, and not just to be social creatures who can interact with other people in an appropriate manner, but also for your ability to think, as you're saying, and to think creatively. I mean, if you are playing a video game all the time, you're also missing out on your life. I just think that we are harming our children, proactively harming them when we give them this technology without thinking and too early. Well, you know, you made that point in the book, which I thought was very powerful. And that is that it's not just what we're doing with that time and our energy in terms of being on our devices. It's also about what we're missing. It's not like that time that we're spending on our devices doesn't count and it, and we just kind of add it on to our life. It's actually being subtracted from yes. the other things that we are able to do. And, you know, you made that point. And I think that is something that children, they don't think this is the real stuff I'm missing. They're just focused, as you said, on what they're looking at in that particular moment. Yes. I mean, time is zero sum, right? You're doing something, you're not doing something else. It is an opportunity cost. And I think that's actually another big point of the book, though, is that a lot of us, and I include myself in this, hadn't really figured out, well, what do what are the other things I want to be spending my leisure time on? Work I can figure out, but what do I want to be spending my leisure time on? You need to ask yourself that question before you start trying to make any changes to your phone habits, because otherwise you're just going to end up off your phone with nothing to do, which is going to lead you back to your phone. Another thing, just going back for a sec to the kid point, lest I sound like a total crazy person or a ranting lunatic, although I feel in a safe space to be that person right now. Absolutely. But um, if you look at some of the things that the tech insiders, the people who actually helped create these products say, and there's been a lot of people speaking out about this recently, um, like the first president of Facebook said, and I quote, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains in reference to the very program platform that he had helped to create. Mm-hmm. You have numerous people, Steve Jobs didn't let his kids have access to an iPad, but he's not the only, that, that one's always brought up as an example. But many of the other executives, Twitter executives, they don't give their kids access to smartphones, let alone social media, because they know something is happening. They do not think it's good for kids. And I think that's very important for the rest of us to be aware of and factor into our own decisions. Now, that is so true. And, you know, you've given us just some wonderful stuff to look at. And we encourage our audience, uh, our listeners to uh, to go to your website and use the tools that you've provided and everything. And, and Catherine, I want to ask you right now, will you come back and talk to us again? We've really enjoyed the conversation and would love to uh, continue it or take it in other directions as well the next time. Sure, I would be happy to, whether it's uh, in a couple of months or in 15 years, we can, <laughs> we can use our, our lanes of follow-ups. Just one more, uh, one more question, Catherine. What's your next book? Where are you headed with regard to this particular direction? And then are you moving into another direction or is there some other level of this that you're thinking of exploring in the future? 
I have a number of ideas for other books. My, my previous book actually was in addition to that mindfulness journal, it was uh, called Vitamania, How Vitamins Revolutionized the Way We Think About Food. And so that was a very different book about science and history of nutrition, but with a similar theme where it was something that seemed very mundane, vitamins. And I realized pretty quickly that they had a philosophical tale to tell about how we think about eating. Similar to phones being much more than just phones, they're invitations to reflect about our lives in general. Um, anyway, so I have a few other book ideas kicking around. But right now, what I really would like to do is to continue to speak about this subject. It's something I feel extremely passionately about, really to see uh, how far I can take this and what kind of impact I can have. So that's what my current hope is. Um, and then I'll see where things go from there. Beautiful, beautiful. My hope too. <laughs> yes, all of ours. We're all in the same wavelength with that. So thank you so much for joining us. And in our next podcast, podcast number four, Rob and I are going to talk about something that every parent really needs to understand, high brain development in their children, and why it is critical for developing choicefulness and protecting kids from the damaging effects of the noise. So until then, thank you for listening and live above the noise. Hello, everyone. If you'd like to get our email update about new episodes, tips and tools, and all the latest information, please sign up for our Noise Watch update on our liveabovethenoise.com website.